Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 15, our final episode in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul's Final Warning to the Corinthian Church, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? So there is a a definite... Uh, feeling of warning here. Uh, He's dealing very seriously now uh, at the end of a second full epistle to a very dysfunctional church, a a messed up church, a church in which there's just so much sin and uh, lots of details in 1 Corinthians about that sin. But in 2 Corinthians seems to be the fundamental issue is just their uh, questioning of him, questioning of his his status as an apostle, their willingness to kind of go with the super apostles and and doubt uh, who Paul is. And so Paul says, look, we're going to come for a visit. I'm going to come for a visit, and I'm going to come in the power of the Lord. Don't underestimate me. And let's get ready for a time of, of reconciliation, a time of healing. Um, and I'm just warning you concerning the issues that we've addressed. So it's really just final warnings here in this chapter. Well, let me go ahead and read this final chapter in 2 Corinthians. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Andy, why does Paul use this tone that he does with the Corinthians as he closes this letter to them? And what significance does Paul place on this being his third visit to the Corinthian church? Well, one of the important issues we have to address when we read various passages of Scripture, especially I think we see this in the book of Hebrews, but here in Corinthians as well, both First and Second Corinthians, is the, the tone of warning. Um, Christians heed warnings. Christians take warnings seriously. We don't blow them off. And so warnings are necessary because we're still in danger. We still have the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're assaulted every moment. And uh, those, those attacks on the ancient church, the early first century church of, of persecution, 
or worldliness. That's the world either smacking you around or handing you baubles. And then the danger that's true in both cases, which is false teaching. All three are severe threats to the Corinthian church. All three of them are. And so the Apostle Paul needs them to heed the warnings. They are in danger. And one of the fundamental dangers is they're willing to listen to the super apostles and thus question Paul Mm. and not just worried about questioning Paul, but questioning Paul's doctrines. Now, that's the real deal. If you're going to question Paul's doctrines, you're in trouble. And so Paul uses a a tone here of severe warning. Now, for us as 21st century readers, we should heed this tone and take Paul and his doctrine seriously and take sin seriously, both for us individually, but also in our local churches. Local churches are messed up. Uh, local churches have problems. And so it's good for us to read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and say, Lord, how are we similarly messed up? How can we heed the warnings? Now, why is it important that charges must be established by multiple witnesses? And how could a single uncorroborated testimony unjustly destroy someone's life or ministry? Well, in general, you have two or three witnesses because people lie. I mean, that's why you have the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness. That really is like in a court trial. Uh, You really could end up killing somebody by the judicial process, by a faulty accusation. So that's why the principle in general is you you need multiple witnesses. And the idea is it's harder to get multiple people to lie. Uh, So you're going to have every matter established by two or three witnesses. This uh, application is a bit strange because he's talking about a third visit. So the idea then is multiple uh, data points kind of establish a pattern. Hmm. And so that's what I get here is like with multiple visits, I think it's going to be pretty clear what you are and what I am in your life. Yeah, he can kind of see the trajectory based on these points that he's plotted out and said, if you continue in this way, there's going to be some problems. Yeah. What is Paul's repeatedly warning the Corinthians teach us about that church and how should we wisely take these verses to heart as we look at verses like verse 2? Well, first of all, we, we know positively when it comes to positive assertions of Christian doctrine, we need to, as good teachers, repeat it. You don't get it the first time. And so, um, you know, as Paul says in, in Philippians, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again as a safeguard to you. Um, Peter also uses repetition as a teaching tool, and Jesus did as well. Um, so I think the idea here is that repetition establishes uh, things. And so the idea here in the negative sense is repeated warnings mean you're in danger. You know, I've told you this again and again, and I'm telling you now, he says effectively for the third time, you are in danger, you're mm-hmm. in trouble, you need to wake up. Mm-hmm. How does the Corinthians demanding proof that God was actually speaking through Paul fit with what we've learned in the previous chapters? And how is Christ powerful toward them through Paul's ministry with them? Well, you know, it's actually not much different. I'm going through uh, the Gospel of Matthew in my Thursday men's Bible study. And and in Matthew 16, we have the same thing where the sad uh, Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus asking or demanding a sign from heaven. And this is after a river of miracles. All they needed to do is just come and be quiet and stand near Jesus on an average day of public ministry, and they'd see about 200 miracles. Um, but what are they doing? They're really trying to discredit. If they need proof that Jesus is the Son of God, they they really aren't going to accept any proof at this point. And, and it's at a lower level, the same thing. You want to you want proof that Christ is speaking through me. You want proof. 
that I am an apostle. Well, very well, you shall have it. And there's a, a kind of a threatening tone here because when I come, I'm going to come powerfully mm. and I'm going to come with the possibility of some very severe discipline. So there will be pretty clear proof. Um, and you know, we'll talk about it in due time, but maybe I'll mention it now. The backdrop in my mind of this kind of threat or warning is the terrifying uh, account in Acts chapter five of Peter with Ananias and Sapphira who had agreed to lie to the church and to the Holy Spirit about the amount of money that they had gotten for a field. They mm. kept back part of the money for themselves. And individually, Ananias and then Sapphira dropped dead, dropped dead, untouched by human hands, but under apostolic authority, under Peter's authority, they dropped dead. And so the idea here is Paul saying, look, you know, I'm going to come with the power of God, I'm going to come with the power of Christ, and he is very zealous for the purity of the church. Mm -hmm. So please don't test me. Don't push me. When I come, you will have ample proof that I am an apostle, but I'd much rather come with gentleness, fatherly uh, gentleness rather than anything harsh. In verse 4, Paul goes on to speak of Christ being weak when crucified. How does that fit into the point he's been making about his own weaknesses in 12, 9 through 10? And how does Paul show a similarity between Christ's weaknesses and strength and his own approach to them in ministry? Right. So I think he's likening himself at a much lower level to Christ himself. Um, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearances that we should believe in him or trust in him or follow him or or be attracted to him. So the idea here is with Christ, appearances can be deceiving. Mm. When Jesus was dead on the cross, he looked to his enemies as a complete failure. Mm. He looked utterly powerless. But in fact, what had just happened is the single most powerful event in all of human history. And the resurrection also, in a, and I wouldn't pit one against the other, which is more important, the crucifixion and resurrection, mm. they utterly go together. And so the idea is appearances can be deceiving. Now, at a lower level, Paul's like that. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. You've criticized my public speaking style. You say the letters are weighty, but his appearance is not much. Uh, maybe he was a, a man of small stature. Maybe he was old. Maybe he was balding. Maybe he was sickly. Uh, maybe a little feeble. Maybe he needed some help to get up, up to the podium or something like that. It's like, don't be deceived. Mm. You may think of me as weak, but I'm not. Mm. And so just like Christ may have seen seemed to be weak, but actually wasn't, uh, the same thing is true of his apostles. We may seem to be weak. For example, you may see me in prison. You may see me despised. You may see me uh, in chains. Don't be deceived. This is where real power is. Mm. This, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. The power of the Spirit is at work in my ministry. So he wants them to see him properly for their sake, not for his own. Again, this is not an ego trip. It's not like he's feeling so insecure and he wants to be loved. He wants a hug, something like that. It's none of that. He wants them to see him properly so they understand the gospel properly. Now, verse 5 is worthy of some extended attention in our time today. Why is the command to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith so vital in the Christian life? And why do so many churchgoers perhaps neglect this command? Yeah, this is a very important uh, verse. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith or whether you are born again or you're Christian. Examine yourself. So this gets to the topic of, of uh, assurance of salvation and maybe somewhat different but related is the process of self-examination, of, of evaluating yourself. 
And so Jonathan Edwards in his in his resolutions that he made as a 19-year-old, he resolved to examine himself every day, mm. to look at his words and his actions to see if he had lived in a proper way, in a way that was godly. And so the we need to have that self-reflective life. We need to to ask the Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart and show me and 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 test me and see if there's any offensive way in me. So this self-examination is something we should do, I think, every day. Lay under the light of the word of God. I, I really love Psalm 139, 23, 24, I just quoted. You know, search me, oh God, show me, show me what's going on in my life. Mm. And then to get accountability partners who do the same, you know, show me who I am, show me what's going on. But let's zero in on the actual verbiage here. You say, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself. Mm. And so the idea here is, am I a Christian? Well, in order to you know, pass the test, you need to know what the questions are. So we talked about this right before we started the podcast, which is uh, something called marks of regeneration. Marks of regeneration. So what should I see in myself mm. that will assure me that I am born again? Should I expect to see sinlessness? Sinlessness, no. Uh, sinlessness is not taught anywhere. Actually, First John implies that if we claim that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. So yeah. we actually, it's not sinlessness. We yearn for it. And that's actually one of the marks of regeneration. Get to it in a moment. But no, it's not sinlessness. It's not this or that. It's not perfection. Um, but what is it then? What are we looking for? So there are various um, tests. I would say I want to commend all five chapters of First John. I think First John 1 through 5, that epistle was written so that we may know that we belong to Christ. He says this again and again. This is how we know. No. This is how we assure our hearts in his presence. So first John, just give a quick quick summary of the tests he gives there. Uh, there's the doctrinal test. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? He is God in the flesh. Mm. Do you believe he died on the cross? Do you believe he rose from the dead? If your doctrine is intact, if you can confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Romans 10. So this is the doctrinal test. Is your doctrine in order? Mm. And then there's the lifestyle test. Are you living a life of holiness? Are you, as First John says, walking in the light as he is in the light? Or is there unconfessed sin? Is there is there a growing tumor of sin? Um, so that's what it means to walk in the darkness. If we walk in the darkness, we lie, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in, in us. The third test in First John is the test of love, the horizontal test, the love for the brothers, and and that in First John and also in James is sacrificial. It's practical. You see your brother in need. You help him sacrificially. You do things for them. And so those are three tests in First John. There are other tests, the fruit of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Do you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control in yourself? Conversely, do you see the acts of the flesh? Do you see those things? And they're listed also in Galatians, you know, factions, divisions, fits of rage, jealousy, sexual immorality, impurity, various things. Um, so that's uh, fruit. Do you see Do you see the flesh dominating or do you see the fruit of the spirit? Also, Second uh, Peter 1 talks about qualities. If you add to your faith, goodness and a goodness, knowledge and knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, love. So those are attributes. Again, we've just mentioned some of those already. And if, if those qualities, says Peter, 
leader are in you and are increasing. Mm -hmm. You're growing in these things. Your principle of growth and development. Um, also, finally, I would commend to you the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the spiritual beggars of the poor in spirit. Are you a spiritual beggar? Do you know that you have nothing to offer? You've been humbled. You've been leveled by the gospel. Mm -hmm. You've been leveled and you know that you're a sinner. You know that you, you're like the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You're the tax collector beating your breast. You won't even look up to heaven and say, be merciful to me. God will give you the kingdom of heaven. And are you mourning over, over your sin? Do you actually grieve over sin? Um, are you meek? You know, are you an essentially humble person? You're not arrogant. And do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not sinless perfection, but you want to be mm. sinlessly perfect. You yearn for it. And then are you pure in heart? Is it an external show or is there actual purity of heart going on? Um, so those various things. Also, uh, mortification, if you're putting sin to, to death by the Spirit, Romans chapter 8, Colossians 3 also mentions that. So those are various uh, elements of the marks of regeneration. So going back to our verse 5, look at this. Is this going on in your life? Do you yeah. see evidence of the Spirit's work in your life? You know, Andy, it strikes me as you mentioned those various tests that are good for us to uh, walk through uh, as we're instructed here to examine ourselves. I think oftentimes people can be hesitant to do that for fear that they might in fact fail the test, right? right. That they might uh, come up lacking or find themselves to not have measured up to one mm -hmm. of these areas as they begin to examine themselves. Mm -hmm. What should someone do if they fail the test? And what does Paul say about himself mm -hmm. concerning this test? Well, if you fail the test, you know, John actually deals with that in 1 John. You know, sometimes you, you may be overly harsh on yourself and, and Christ is greater than your heart. And so sometimes I think we want to keep it simple and, and just get to the doctrine. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, that he died for you and that you are a sinner and that apart from his death, you will have no hope of salvation? And have you called on the name of the Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? That's just simple. So you do that. Um, but... There may be larger issues, and I think that's why First John was written, um, because holiness matters. You know, there needs to not be walking in the dark, that deception. And so I think we need to take it seriously. If you fail the test, that's when you need to get very serious about your sanctification. I really believe that sanctification, that process of growth in Christ-likeness, is the validation that justification has happened. Mm -hmm. If you're not seeing sanctification, then there's very good reason to doubt that justification has happened. It doesn't mean it's the end of your life at that point. What you have to do is get super serious about your soul at that point. Uh, I would set aside all the things you're doing and make certain that you actually are born again. Mm. Zero in on your lifestyle. If things are bothering your conscience, put them to death. I mean, get serious about the salvation of your soul. That's what I would urge. One more thing. Yeah. Just the validity of asking the question, am I a Christian, is important for some evangelicals, like some Bible Belt kind of thing, which says all you have to do is walk the aisle and pray the prayer, and then you should never doubt yourself. To doubt is to sin. Mm. That's not biblical. We're told here to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. So we also, as parents, we've got kids growing up, you know, teenagers. Don't be simplistic about whether they're born again or not. They prayed the prayer when they were eight and they got baptized. There's nothing more that we need to worry about. Once saved, always saved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't do that. Teach your children the marks of regeneration. Mm -hmm. Teach them how they could and should examine themselves. That's, I think, healthy. And, and pastors should do the same with their church members. 
In verse 6, Paul says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Why, why the connection here to his own uh, life in this letter he's writing to the Corinthians? Well, if Paul had failed the test, he's saying that we're not Christians. And so I think you'll find that we are. Hmm. And um, not only that, but Paul's had far more tests than just the basic test of are you a Christian? The second question here, more not more important, but on top of that is are you an apostle? Hmm. And, you know, he says, look, the things that mark an apostle, signs and wonders and all that were done among you with great perseverance. So we haven't failed the test as Christians. And frankly, I'm telling you directly, we've not failed the test as apostles either. Hmm. So you're testing us. You're evaluating us. The super apostles are questioning us. Um, you'll find out we've not failed the test. We actually are the genuine article. Yeah. So this is just another affirmation uh, in Paul's writing that's saying to the Corinthian church, you ought to listen to what what you're reading here, and you ought to take exactly. this to heart exactly. as you uh, seek to follow Christ. Mm-hmm. What does Paul mean in verse 7 about them not doing any wrong, even if Paul himself is proved to be a false teacher or reprobate? And why is the concept that each church and individual is responsible for their own spiritual standing and health so vital? Right. Well, just again, we were talking about this verse. We pray to God that you won't do anything wrong. Uh, it's just a good verse by itself, you know. Mm, <laughs> it's just yeah. Say it at any moment. But I think in context here, he's saying we're praying that you will evaluate yourselves properly, that you'll test yourself to see if you're in the faith, that you'll evaluate us properly, and frankly, that you'll deal with us properly. That you won't do anything wrong toward us. Mm. I think is the context here, and that that you will greet us properly, show us proper reverence, that you'll submit to our authority and to our doctrine, specifically mine as the apostle to the Gentiles, he would say. And uh, why is it important that churches take responsibility for evaluation? I think just realizing that you know, every church is responsible for its own health. It's responsible for the doctrine that it accepts. And so they need to step up, grow up like mature people and say, we are taking responsibility for what we are permitting. We're not listening anymore to these abusive um, uh, prosperity driven uh, super arrogant super apostles. We're throwing them out. Mm. It's time to evict them. We're going to mm. take responsibility for our lives and our doctrine. What does verse 8 teach us about Paul's ministry? Uh, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. I mean, we're, we are, you know, <laughs> constrained by the Spirit. Mm. We, we cannot work contrary to the gospel or to Christ as the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The gospel is the word of God is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We can't do anything against the truth. Or you could say it's relating to their true situation. We're not going to lie about you. If you guys are being corrupted and all that, we're going to have to deal with it. And so we're not going to do anything against the truth absolutely, which is Christ and the scripture. But more specifically, we're not going to do anything against the truth of what's actually happening with you Corinthians. Mm -hmm. We are going to only serve the truth. And if we come and find you sinful and needing discipline, we will do it. In verse 9, Paul says that he's glad whenever he himself and his ministry team members are weak, but the Corinthians are strong. What does verse 9 teach us about Paul's prayers for them and how we can pray for ourselves and for others? Right. Well, this goes back to his earlier statement in the previous chapter. He says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And so, you know, it goes back also to just the the way that the super apostles are disparaging Paul. They're basically saying, look at him. I mean, he's just, mm. I mean, just look at him. Is that, could someone that looks like that and talks like that and carries himself like that actually be a messenger of God? Look at us. Mm. We are strong and healthy and capable and we're winners. 
and we're wealthy and we're wise and all that. It's like, yeah, don't be deceived because mm -hmm. even Satan masquerades as an angel of light. We don't look like much, but neither did Jesus on the cross. And so the idea uh, here is he's like, we're actually glad when you see us as weak because we want you to learn how things really are. Mm -hmm. uh, but we actually want you to be genuinely strong. So um, I think that's what he means. We're glad whenever we're weak, but you are strong. And then he says our prayer is for your either perfection. Uh, some of the translations say perfection, some restoration. They're very different from each other. So that's why it's worth uh, a study. Um, the word does have a semantic range of meanings. Hence, the ESV goes differently than the KJV slash NIV. So let's go with restoration. Um, restoration means there's a brokenness in a relationship. Uh, and if you look at the Corinthians, do you see any brokenness mm. in relationships? Man, within the church, <laughs> between them and Paul, uh, with the surrounding community, there's all Everywhere. kinds of brokenness. Yeah, it's yeah. just tremendous mm. horizontal brokenness. So if we're going to go with the word restoration, we pray that all that brokenness would get healed. Mm. That you wouldn't be, as in the first epistle, faction-ridden anymore but that you would realize you get everyone. You get Paul, you get Cephas, the Peter, you get everybody. We're all on the same team. We're in the same church. So that you would have a genuine, sweet, loving unity with yourselves. We pray for that kind of restoration. Uh, we would love to see restoration between us and you. We'd love to have you happy to see us and welcome us again, et cetera. All right, so that's restoration. If, on the other hand, the word means perfection, then that would be Christ-likeness, uh, a completion of their salvation journey. We pray that you would be perfected Hmm. by Christian growth, which again, I would have to say is the point of the entire, uh, those two epistles, both of them aimed toward the perfection of the Corinthian church. And and again, you're going to get the same thing um, in verse 11, where he yeah. says, aim for restoration or shoot for restoration and, or perfection, same thing. So we're going to do, we would do the same thing in that word. So let, let's say we'll stick with the perfection thing here for now and say, we're praying for your perfection, that you will end up completely perfect. And you should aim for that. Mm. You should make that your goal. Mm. And so I would say, let's, let's stick with that. Every day you could get up, have your quiet time, and then say to the Lord, today, Lord, today, mm. I'm aiming for perfect obedience to you. I want to be perfect in my love for you. I know I won't be, but I'm, I want to be perfect. And wherever I'm not perfect, I want you to convict me. Because wouldn't we say, Wes, that wherever we're not perfect, we've sinned? Mm. Mm -hmm. It's it's not like there's some gray area where it's okay to be less than the standard. God understands. He grades you on the curve kind of thing. No, it mm. doesn't. No, I, I think there are many things that the Holy Spirit hasn't even made us aware of yet. But where the, the Spirit has made us aware, he wants you to get active. Yeah. And so aim for perfection. That's helpful. What insight does verse 10 give into Paul's occasionally harsh tone in his letters? And what does it teach us about the true purpose of spiritual authority? Yeah, Paul seems to be harsh, and he writes some very sharp things um, at various points. Um, I think part of it is he's he's got to he's got to kind of tread the line here. He ends up doing some odd things, uh, like boasting. The whole boasting thing is odd, and he says it's odd. He says like yeah, you've I've, you've driven me to it, but I've, I was acting like a crazy man. Are they servants of Christ? I'm more. I'm more of a servant than they are. It's like eh. you know when you get into that point, it's different. But what he's saying is, look, my techniques here were as I thought was necessary under the leadership of the Holy Spirit for your sanctification. Mm. You are in danger. And so when somebody's in danger, if somebody's sleeping in a burning house, you're not going to kind of stroke their forehead and, and kind of, you know, just you're going to do what's necessary to wake them up. Mm. And some of that may seem harsh at the time, but in the end you realize it's loving. So it's almost like these Corinthians are in a burning house. They need to be woken up. And so 
That's why sometimes uh, the feeling is harsh. And he's saying, look, when I come for that third visit that we talked about, I don't want to have to behave like that. It's mm. not my home base. I mean, look, come on. Everybody likes a fellowship meal. Everybody likes a fun time. Everybody likes to hug each other and hold hands and pray and and greet each other, as he says, with a with a holy kiss. That's what I want to do. But if I if if I have to, mm. I'm gonna be harsh. Yeah. And again, behind that, I hear the ultimate end of that is apostolic authority in bringing discipline from the Lord. Mm. So not just death, not just Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead, but he said with the with the Lord's Supper, some of them were sick. Mm. So there could be some sicknesses. You remember the story in the book of Acts, chapter 13, where Elamus the sorcerer mm. is there making it hard for Paul to preach to the Roman official in Crete. And uh, or Cyprus, I never you know get those islands right. But anyway, uh, first missionary journey with Barnabas, and he turns on the man and says, "Now you're going to be blind, and you're going to be unable to see the light of the sun, light of the sun." And immediately, Elamus was blinded. Mm-hmm. You're like, "Wow!" And that made quite an impression on the Roman procurator at that point. So you look at that and you're like, "Can Paul do that?" Well, Paul can't do anything. But the Holy Spirit can do that, and he might very well do something like that, some judgments, some disciplines. And so, look, I don't want to have to do that. So he says early, do you want me to come with a rod or a whip, or shall I come with a fatherly gentleness? You make the choice. <laughs> right. And ultimately, at the end of that, he says, look, the point of this is for building up, not for tearing down. Exactly. And it may be that discipline is what's necessary for you to be built up. Yeah, let me say something, because that's a great question. I didn't answer it, but I do want to answer it now. What is the purpose of all authority? I mean, there is authority. Uh, there's authority of government with its subjects. There's authority of elders with the church members. There's authority within a marriage where the husband is the head of the wife, and so he has a leadership. There's authority of the parents, the mo- mother and father over the children. All authority is in the pattern of Christ, servant authority. It's fundamentally, I have this authority to build you up. I have this authority to do you Good. Mm. Now, the fundamental difference between that and the Gentiles, rulers of the Gentiles, is their authority is for their benefit, mm. to to line their pockets, to yeah. puff their ego. You know, Jesus said, "Look, that's not what authority is for. Authority is so I can wash your feet. Mm. Authority is so I can keep you safe. Authority is so I can feed you and provide for your needs. That's what authority is about." Mm. Now, we talked a little bit about verse 11 because of the word that can be translated perfect, perfection, restoration, complete. How do the commands in verse 11 point toward continual growth for the Corinthians as well as Christian unity? And why is that so vital for a local church? Right. Well, my book on sanctification is called Infinite Journey. And, and though I wasn't totally satisfied with that as a title, I, I, I think the, the strength of the title Infinite Journey is while we are alive, we still have progress to make. We're never going to reach a point where we've arrived. So what that means is we're always going to be moving after perfection. We're going for Christ-likeness. The problem with the title Infinite Journey is the idea that you'll never reach it. And the fact is we actually will be glorified. So we will be perfect in heaven. We will be complete. Although in my book on heaven, I argue that that doesn't mean we'll be omniscient. So we'll still be developing. So we'll still learn and grow in heaven, but we will be perfect. We'll have no more immorality, no more sins. So the idea is you should keep for the rest of your lives aiming for perfection. Mm-hmm. Keep seeking out sin in your life and, and putting it to death. All right, Andy, I'm sure everyone listening is wanting to know what does it mean to greet one another with a holy kiss and how should we seek to apply this today? Wow. Um 
hearty handshake, you know. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's just they're different cultures. You know, you see that French culture where they kiss each other's uh, or the air next to each other's cheeks. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's an actual kiss going on. Yeah, I think even culturally there's a dependence on how close and yeah. do you actually kiss the cheek. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't know what goes on with that, but there's just different cultures. And so first of all, we just have to say the language fits their culture. The idea is, I think, a warm-hearted greeting. Yes. First and foremost, when you see that person, they know – uh, that you're happy to see them. You're really excited to see them. And so whatever that means, I mean, a lot of the men in our churches and the women hug each other. Mm-hmm. And we do a lot of hugging. Mm-hmm. And and there's right right ways to do that in different ways. You know, I don't think there's wrong ways, but you know, there's ways that we just know that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. And and the women do that. Cross gender, just gotta be careful. You know, I don't think it's it's a wicked or sinful thing for a brother to hug a sister in Christ. Um, but some people don't feel comfortable with it. I've, I've noticed that. And I, I've, I've done that before where you do, a, you know, I think an inappropriate kind of congratulatory side hug or something like that. And the, the, the she doesn't feel comfortable with that. He's like, all right, note to self, don't do that again. Yep. Um, but, but there are others that, that they just, they're fine with it. They're just kind of outgoing huggy people. So, you know, just as long as it's done in a, in a holy way, uh, like Paul uh, says to Timothy, um, you know, or is it Titus? He says, you know, greet the younger, the sisters in Christ with absolute purity. Mm-hmm. So long as there's absolute purity, but all of that aside, the sexual side aside, the gender side aside, just physicality, um, you know, a hug, pat on the back, a handshake, different things. Parenthetically, that's what made virtual church so unsatisfying, you know, the streaming. If you're you're able to go to church, go to church because there's just some uh, a physical present stuff that just can't be duplicated by Zoom or streaming or things like that. Yeah, I was thinking that as you were talking. I was like, man, there's just something about proximity, right? Being around brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in a way that's culturally appropriate, greet one another with that warmth that comes from being a part of the family of God. Why does Paul so often include greetings from other Christians at the end of his letters? Just so that you'll know you're part of a vast worldwide movement. There's a big church being uh, formed here and and you've got a lot of friends you're going to meet in heaven. So just know that God's at work all over the world. That's good. Verse 14 is a very famous benediction and it's the conclusion of our time in Second Corinthians, how does this benediction reveal the existence of the Trinity? What's ascribed to each of the members of the Trinity here? Yeah, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And it's just Trinitarians, just like, you know, being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and their other um, Trinitarian verses, uh, Revelation 1. Um, you know, there's a, a Trinitarian greeting from uh, the Father, then the Spirit, and then Jesus. Um, I think there's a song is in it that kind of reverses the order of the Trinity a bit. What, which one is that? <laughs> yeah, so we've been singing This Is Our God. This Is and, Our God. Uh, it talks about Father, Father Spirit, Spirit, Son, Son because so it needs the rhyme scheme. Second person of the Trinity, it's actually <laughs> listed third there, but don't be confused. We're not trying to it's have rhyme any heresy scheme. in, our, in yep. our corporate worship. So, But even here, Christ comes before the Father. And so, you know, uh, I think there's a reason for the general order, Father, Son, Spirit. But um, at any rate, what are the attributes? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the mm. graciousness of Christ, his grace that flows. May God, may Christ's grace be with you. May you have a sense of that grace. And then um, the the love of God. You know, obviously Christ is characterized by love and God is characterized by grace. So it's not like these are exclusive to each of the members of the Trinity here as they're mentioned here, but to all the members of the Trinity. But, you know, the love of God. And I think it's it's very important. I remember Martin Luther said it's very, very hard for a sinner to believe that God loves him. So we have an easier time believing Jesus loves us than that God loves us. Mm. So meditating on the fact that God really does dearly love us. He mm. really does. And then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which is beautiful. You know, that, that fact that you asked about 
about the saints, you know, greeting one another. Mm-hmm. The idea that we are all one in the spirit. We're part of, of, a, of a body of Christ and it's the spirit that makes us one. Absolutely. Andy, any final thoughts on this chapter or this letter to the Corinthian church as we conclude 2 Corinthians? Yeah, what a great study it's been. 2 Corinthians does have a different feel. It's, it's, it's more deeply thematic, I think, whereas 1 Corinthians seems very topical as, as uh, Paul's checking off a checklist, it seems, of issues that have come up. Um, this uh, seems to be more of a thematic discussion. And it's interesting how Paul's defense of his own um, apostolic authority and personality etc. brings us such richness, Um, but it's been a great study. Well, this has been episode 15 in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast, and one of the highlights of our week is spending this time walking through God's Word together. As we look ahead to the new year, we want to let you know that we'll be taking the month of January to prepare for the new season of our Bible Study Questions podcast. So we want to invite you to join us on Wednesday, February 2nd, for the new season of the Two Journeys Bible Study podcast as we begin an in-depth walk through the book of Acts. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.